Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Um, I'm very excited today to have Sarah Hamilton join us. How are you, Sarah? Good. Lovely Good. to see you again. Um, Sarah is the Managing Director of Supernova Australia, um, social e-commerce superstars. Um, Sarah um, co-founded the brand Sand and Sky. Um, Supernova Australia have four brands, Body Boss, Sand and Sky, Coco and Eve and Skinny Mint. She's co-founder of Bellabox, a beauty subscription service, has a background in finance, uh, lived and worked in London, lived and worked in New York, um, is married with three children and two bulldogs, Gilchrist and Hector. So welcome to the interview series, Sarah, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you very much. You always make that sound so glamorous, that intro, so I'll have to own it for today. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Sarah, for the people in our audience who haven't come across you before, I just wonder if you can share a little more about yourself and, and your passions and what drives you and, and your journey. So I think I probably grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. So I moved, as you said, into finance, but I found myself doing accounting for really fun companies. And accounting and companies where I understood what they did and they had a tangible impact on my life. So media, um, you know, magazines, uh, also sort of websites. So everything that then drove me to understand the value of finance, but in an area where I felt quite connected to it and I felt like I was, I was a customer of theirs. And through that process, and I think because of our family background, um, I moved into a general management position at um, Spin in New York. And without all the risk, I somewhat, somewhat felt like I understood how to run a business of that size, how to try and marry the creative side, which is not really my forte, with the business side. So working with, yeah, really lots of fun, creative people, but then trying to manage the finance side and connect the dots at a, at a management level. So from there, my twin sister came over to New York and said, let's do Bellabox. Um, that was inspired by a company called Birchbox in the US. And it was these two Harvard girls no background in beauty, uh, business background, but really had suffered through going to department stores and not knowing what to buy and spending all this money and looking like a clown. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to start a subscription service for women that allowed them to navigate that. And it sort of introduced beauty to people that were novices, but also beauty experts could still feel like they were connected with that community. Mm -hmm. So we started with Bellabox in 2011, I can't believe it. And were you a and beauty expert at that point in time, Sarah? I was still absolutely not a beauty expert. I think early on at Bellabox, one of the girls who helped source the brands um, had to do my makeup for a shoot and she was mortified when my makeup bag had broken compacts. I don't know if you put concealer on or, you know, over foundation. I still am absolutely hopeless at it, but I, I don't mind skincare. So, Good. Yeah. yeah, so I think through the Bellabox experience, we learned how to market other people's products. And probably exactly the same as um, we come into Bellabox somewhat naively, we then somehow thought that we could make our own brands and produce our own products and sell them globally. So it was very much a view of um, capturing that US audience, 
and we kind of just dove in head first and hence Sand and Sky and um, the other brands. Fantastic. So Sarah, you, you sound like someone who is pretty comfortable being out of your comfort zone. Does that, does that, you know, are you or? I probably don't. I think I very much live in the moment. So I don't focus on being out of my comfort zone and I'm very good at admitting when I'm wrong or if I don't know something. So I just find my way and by asking questions that perhaps other people assume that that should be part of your knowledge base. So maybe from that, that does mean that I'm comfortable being out of my comfort zone, but I, I'm curious. So I naturally just feel like I want to find out more. And then through that, it helps us shape our business direction without being hung up on what we should be doing. Mm, okay. Um, I just wonder, um, you know, I, so many people will look at you, Sarah, and they'll think, um, you know, I could never do what Sarah does. Um, you know, it's a pretty inspirational journey that you guys are on uh, with the things that you've achieved. How do you respond to that? You know, if people say that oh, I could never do what you do, Sarah. I'm always shocked when people say that, and I don't think I don't think about it for a moment. And I had a um, moment where I was at my brother's one of his children's birthday parties, and a girl from our school said exactly that to me, and I was really like, "Really? Oh my god, no! I wouldn't even think about that." I think. What we do every day is just incremental change and trying to get better and trying to learn more. And as we know, juggling with kids and everything like that, I, I know you just do the best that you can. So I don't really think about it. And I'm also you know, surrounded by lots of women that are doing exactly the same. So it becomes part of the general vernacular. Mm. Yeah, I'm shocked when people say it. <laughs> I, um, you know, you shared with me a couple of stories that I wondered if you might share with the audience. and. It was about points in your career where you have felt vulnerable. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I'm trying to remember what stories I shared. But I think before <laughs> we'll just get I was, yeah, before I was, um, you know, when I worked, I always worked in business. I was always in a management team that was mainly male. I actually never had an issue with that. And once when I was in New York, I had to help set up our office. So I was somehow project managing the construction of our office and one of the builders said to me, look, Sarah, you need to come to site every week, but you can't wear a short skirt because it's going to distract the builders. Right. And I said, um, well, now that you've said that to me, um, and I was 35 at, at this point, so my legs were much better than they are now. No. I was like, well, I'm, gonna wear, <laughs> I'm going to wear a short skirt every time I come here because I take exception to that and I don't really think that anyone should feel that. So for that point in my life, I felt like that was the right reaction and I thought I was kind of shocked by that. But certainly once I had kids, then I feel like that's when sort of, I don't want to say discrimination, but that's when I felt more female than I ever have before. And I felt different to the other men in the boardroom. So that was definitely something I had to overcome. And how did that play out for you? Because that was at a point, I think, in your business where you had, um, well, new external investors come in. Is that right? Yes. So I pitched for investment um, when I was pregnant twice. <laughs> So the first round was actually not that bad and most people were really appreciative. And I actually said to our, our first investors, I said to one of the lead investors, you know, you can ask me anything, ask me whatever you want, because I know that being pregnant, and I said, this is confidential, you know, being pregnant, it might, you know, you might feel uncomfortable with that. And the first thing he asked me was how old I was. And then it transpired that he was actually two months younger than us. So I'm like, great, I feel quite horrible and pregnant right now and now you're the investor who's younger than me and I'm admitting my age. The second round was a lot harder because it was a much bigger investment round and a much more, you know, you were exposed to the boardroom and when you're pregnant, you're really pregnant. So it definitely, there were a few looks, 
there were some people that would, you know, talk about it directly, which is nice. Like, you know, number one, hey, you're pregnant. How are you feeling? And then there were other times where you walk into a room and you just feel the judgment, um, you know, sort of roll on over you and then no, you know, no discussion around the fact that you were pregnant when you're like, kind of nice isn't it that someone's pregnant can't you just say something to anything yeah. yeah anything just like admit it don't like just think that I've all of a sudden I've got this belly that's protruding from my stomach and I am not pregnant so yeah that was I think really tough because you're like you're putting yourself on the line and you're pitching for investment and then when you notice that after you haven't really had that in your life it's yeah it's quite shocking did it throw you at the time do you think when you were pitching or how did you kind of how did you manage that it's funny, I feel like every time I was pitching, there was a little bit of nerves. Um, and I think really you just got, you know, quite good at it in the end because you were pitching so many times. So it probably threw me, but I didn't show it outwardly. And there was just something that I was very disheartened by afterwards. But also it helped us decide who we would want to go with because obviously the boardrooms and, and not chatting about the fact that I was pregnant, you know, showed me that they weren't the right people for us anyway. Sarah, one of the um, one of the things that led me to launching this series was one of the things I do is mentor executives, and I came across a request to mentor someone um, where the request was to help them find their voice, mm-hmm. and I just wondered what that meant in terms of finding their voice. And if I say finding your voice, does that resonate at all? Did you have to find your voice anywhere along the way? I think it still happens from time to time because I think naturally women still hold back before giving an opinion and they'll let other one, others go first. And I think definitely during COVID because we're all on Zoom and girls, we've got a you know mostly female team. So everyone's really polite because you're trying to, you know, let other people speak first. But definitely it is something, yeah, it, it does happen. And I it resonates with me completely because I think, yeah, you're sort of, you're happy to be second, you're happy to back up people, but sometimes it feels quite hard to be the first person to chat. And it's almost a situation, like if you're pitching, you're kind of like, okay, I'll hand back and I'll, you know, I'll let the conversation start. Whereas if someone asks you for a meeting, then I'm probably more, um, you know, I'm happy to you know, have my voice and express my opinion because I know that they want me more than I want them. In yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, it's interesting what you say, you know, a lot of the statistics I'm seeing around just simple things like, well, that's not really that simple, but um you know, men are four times more likely to ask for a salary increase. And when women do ask, they ask for 30% less. And I'm just wondering, do you, are you conscious of those things in terms of managing um, a workforce as well? Like, you know, how does that play out? So we're really fair with our appraisals. And because we have so many females, we have different levels of percentage increase that people can go through. So I think we make it extremely fair, but I agree. Like typically a man will come in, you know, be much more forthright. But through our appraisal process, which is quite strict, we do see that people have a voice because Mm -hmm. we make them lay out why they should get a raise. Yeah. have to note it down it goes through all these different levels of committee so it's almost teaching people how to find that voice and how to make sure that they can negotiate but yeah. definitely new starters I feel like when the men come in they know their numbers and they're able to really push for what they want I think because of our company perhaps females also come in they're like I really want a chance to work with you and then they don't they sort of go what they what they feel like they should get and yeah. they don't talk about it. But yes, we have that appraisal process to make it easier for them. But I can totally see it happening everywhere. Even to my friends, it still happens. And did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Like, did you always think you'd run your own company? Or what was what's the story there? 
I feel like, and I was sharing, you know, my dad said at one point, none of us had a salary. So there's six of us in our family and we all were running our own businesses. So maybe it was innate, but I also very much live in the moment. So I'm not a, plan, a natural planner. Like in five years, I want to be here. I find that quite hard. So it feels like it kind of just happened. But once I was there, I knew I was comfortable with it. And I'm, yeah, I don't get scared and I'm not worried. I just can kind of roll through those feelings of obviously feeling like you've got a little bit of risk, you're running your own business, you're an entrepreneur, and how that feels, I'm quite comfortable with that feeling. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Some days it feels wrong. <laughs> Let's go back to the, the um, vulnerable part. Yeah. And... Um, Let's go back to, I think, a, again, it's a situation you spoke about with investors coming in, but how it really changed the dynamics of kind of, you know, what you were doing. And I think what we spoke about was you kind of started second guessing yourself a bit at the time. Definitely our first investors were uh, very much individuals. They were really growing into growing global businesses. Our second investors were more corporate. So they came in and after being very nice through the process, then came in with a different view on the business and what should happen. And 100%, uh, we second-guessed everything. And in hindsight, I have so much regret about that because we should have stood our ground. We knew our business, they were investing in our business, so we should have been able to make those decisions. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to live with. It's, you know, left a very bitter taste in my mouth. But one of the reasons with Supernova that we don't have investors is because of that experience. And that is really sad because people have great investment experience. But for us... It was very damaging because we really we were told what to do we weren't asked it didn't feel collaborative it just completely changed as soon as the um, document was signed if you if you went through that experience again so hindsight um what could you because you wouldn't you would have still had exactly the same you know experience background all those sorts of things like do you think there's things you could have done differently mm -hmm. I think if we had a better outlined our expectations, so I think there's so much work on the front end, what's the business worth, you know, where do you think you'll go? And there's not enough sitting down, like, what do you expect from us? You know, what do we have to deliver? How do we deal if there's conflict? What are you going to offer to this partnership? What are we going to offer? There was none of that. It was almost like so sort of cut off at the valuation point. And really, we should have sat down and spent more time nutting out how we were going to work together and what would happen. Like, if they disagreed with something, then what would we do to manage that? And, yeah, I think that fell by the wayside and we suffered for it. And I think now, perhaps age as well, I think, you know, you really have to think about why you want investment. And I think if you go in going, we're desperate for investment, we really need it, you know, then it doesn't feel like a partnership. It feels like, you know, you're the lower grade person. And I think if you have that confidence to know exactly what you want and what you want them to deliver, then you'll be stronger in your... Yeah. I know, um, Sarah, that you lost your dad a few years ago, sadly. And I know he was a terrific mentor to you. How do you fill that gap? Like, what do you have mentors that you turn to? So as a family, we still chat quite a lot. So we all have different businesses and obviously I work with my sister and then my brother works with my brother. So I feel like there's, a, you know, a lot of conversations. And then I think as you get older, like, you're, again, your friends are doing the same thing and I've got, you know, amazing group of friends. So I feel like I lean on them more. And especially when you're working with family, it's good to get outside counsel as well. So, yeah, I've never pursued, like, a mentor that I don't really know. It's really come from my family or friendship groups, and I think that's helpful. And I think you've got to be able to talk about it. Sometimes you want to catch up with friends and just be like, 
happy and I think it is really important for you to discuss your challenges. How do you juggle everything? <laughs> it's a very good question. I, some days I have no idea. I, don't, like, I think you've got to keep saying by finding time for yourself, exercising. I really, I recently dropped out of the business group that I was in just because I couldn't find time to spend with them. And I really this year have prioritised work, family and then friends a bit more. So yeah, I think it's about simplifying your life and being, a, being present, especially for your kids. If you're, my view would be if you're on the phone the whole time while your kids are around and they notice that. Um, so really trying to, yeah. And that's why I love being back in the office, really trying to compartmentalise work, home and friendship. Can I ask, um, you made a decision fairly early on to move out of, um, I won't say corporate, you're in corporate, but to, to make a decision to move away from other people's businesses. Yeah. Could you see a world where you did stay in that space at all? And or I guess as you think about that, are there things you deliberately do different mm. um, at Supernova than what you experience in other businesses? Yeah, I don't think I could have seen, seen myself staying in that environment. I think now it's just not me. I think we have, you know, the difference between Supernova and Bellabox, that second round of investment is we have so much freedom now to make our own decisions. And those decisions are most of the time right. And I think sometimes in corporate, there's seeing that, you know, that you're fenced in a little bit. We could do anything that we want every single day and we try and really impart that on the team. So when I look back at that and think about that structure, and even when we have really corporate people come into the team, you can tell that they're like, oh, no, but I only do this job. Our team does everything. And that's what I enjoy more. I like the variety. I like the challenge. Yeah. Um, I know when we caught up recently, one of the things you shared um, was that you don't really think about um, the sort of gender yeah. issue and make a big deal of females in leadership and those sorts of things. So with your daughter, as an example, it's not really a conversation that you have mm. and those sorts of things. I wonder if you would share, um, and I get that as I shared with you, I think, you know, probably probably in the period I was CEO as well, I probably felt pretty similar. So where does that kind of come from? What's? I think it comes from that time, as I said before, I had children where I didn't really notice it. And then if people would speak to me about it, I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of fine. I'm comfortable in that environment. I'm comfortable with men. I have no problem with that. And I think now, as I said, you know, I shared with you that story, my daughter, I was telling her that I was doing a panel, which for them typically means they get chocolate or, you know, something else afterwards. And I said, oh, it's, yeah, I'm doing a panel. And she said, what's it on? And I, it was women in business. And I just said, it's about being in business. And she said, boring. <laughs> and that's why I thought, well, it's kind of boring. And then I told everyone on the panel, you know, I find that really hard having a young daughter and trying to work out, you know, how much I should admit, admit to her. Cause then I feel like it's kind of shaping what she would expect her working life to be. So yeah, that's kind of where I sit, but I, I feel like I understand it more and more and I feel like I need to pay more attention to it, but it is really hard. We are not there yet. There's still so much work to do. So yeah, it's kind of like, it's almost like I'm stuck in my own head that I don't want to admit it, but I feel like I need to, I feel like I do need to do more to help others out. And again, because we have a very female staff, you know, we treat them obviously very equally so we don't see that so I kind of feel like hopefully we're helping a generation of girls that then don't have that same feeling as I did you know once I had kids in yeah. yeah and I think that's the point isn't it that um you know can we find a way to navigate this space where people don't have to hit those hit those points mm -hmm. where um 
I guess there's always going to be an element of compromise or something along the way, but maybe perhaps where that compromise is more, everyone has to think about the solution, not necessarily the female thinking about the solution, perhaps. Yeah. So, okay. Um, it's It's been incredible to have the opportunity to talk to you. And I've got a few other questions, but I just did want to ask while we're on that space mm. there, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like you know what does it look like today and what should it look like so this is a very good question and I actually asked someone close to us Maria Hamilton her thoughts on this did you <laughs> I did <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I loved her answer and she said it is determination and speaking up and it's recognizing when you're in that situation and you are speaking up that you need to so we have a rule here that I always feel like, so all the junior people should speak before I, sh I should speak. That's what I try to do. But I think when you're at that moment, so a different company for us, at that moment, you need to be the one to find your voice, as we talked about, and be determined to get your point across. I think that's where we need to be. I think a lot of people still aren't doing that. And then have it as part of the common vernacular, much like I said with talking to my daughter. I'm like, I don't want it to be a thing, but I want people to understand that Females are probably more empathetic, like as we've talked about, you know, the benefits of having females on boards, like has been proven 25 times over, but yet we still come up against the Collingwood Football Clubs of the world, you know, and <laughs> so, yeah, so I think that's what I keep coming back to that theme is like, how can you be heard so that you inspire younger girls to not feel like we have ever felt and, and kind of move on from that, hopefully. Mm, it's amazing. Um, What's next on your agenda? So you said you're not a big planner, you live in the moment, but I guess being managing director, you have to have a little bit of an eye on the future. So what's what's next for you guys? We've got some brands that we wouldn't mind launching. So continue building the brands that we've got. We're doing a lot more in the US, especially in retail, which is going well. So, and then it's, you know, especially the e-commerce world is constantly evolving. So a lot of people are looking at Facebook, what's going to be next, Instagram, TikTok. There's never a dull day. So I feel like if we plan too much, then we wouldn't have time to understand how our environment is changing. Because yeah. that's we have to be reactive all of the time. So it sort of suits my non-planning mentality to keep growing the brands. <laughs> when you're looking for people to join the team, what are, you know, are there kind of non-negotiable, non so to speak, in terms of what you're looking for? Yeah, certainly culture. So people that fit in. Uh, I can't stand arrogance and I can't stand people that lie. So it's someone that will get along. We are a very collaborative team. I think that's why we probably found the lockdown so hard because we do a lot of brainstorming. Yeah. So, yeah, it's someone who can come and bring a new skill to the team. So we don't know how to do everything. Someone should come in with a new skill or experience that we're like, we can't match that. They're going to bring something new. So yeah, it's always bringing something new, but also being very collaborative with the team and um, yeah, having a great work ethic and fun. I like to laugh at work, so. It's fantastic. So Sarah, you're obviously an incredibly determined and, uh, and not afraid of speaking up. Um, and I'm just so pleased to have had you join our conversation today in this series. So I'm sure everyone will love to have heard your stories. And thank you for sharing some of those vulnerable moments as well with us. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. I'm very humbled. Hello. I'm so glad you're still here with us. I finished Sarah's interview and I thought to myself, uh, it doesn't feel complete. It felt like there was still something that was unanswered. 
And when I reflected on it, I thought Sarah raised Maria Hamilton as someone she turned to, to help her think about the definition of brave feminine leadership. And I thought, we need to know who Maria is. Um, so in a special cameo performance, um, I wanted to introduce you to Maria Hamilton. This could get complicated. Maria is my step-mother-in-law. I'm not sure if there's such a thing. Um, I've got a complicated family structure to get out there. Maria is married to my gorgeous husband. So <laughs> oh, I should leave that in there. Actually, I'm married to my gorgeous husband and Maria is married to my husband's gorgeous father. There's a lot of gorgeous, gorgeousness in there. Uh, Maria has had an extraordinary career herself and in part, Maria is responsible for this series. You know, 10 years ago, Maria said to me, um, when I just, I wasn't aware of the, the extent of the challenges that females still faced in the workforce. I really wasn't. And um, she said to me at the time, you know, don't you dare um, walk away from an opportunity to use your skills to support other women who are coming through and to make a difference for them. And it was one of those moments where I may not have enjoyed the conversation at the time, but those words rolled around in my head. And uh, I'm sure that they were part of the influence for this series that I've produced today. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce Maria Hamilton. Hi, everyone. Here I am back with Maria Hamilton, as I promised. Hello, Maria. Hello, Melissa. It is um, fantastic to have you joining me as a little surprise cameo in the series, Maria. I shared with you that uh, Sarah Hamilton, in her interview with me, um, shared with the audience that she had asked you what brave feminine leadership meant. And she loved your answer and it really resonated um, with her. And she shared that it was about being determined and speaking up. And there's more to it than that, but that was the starting point. And uh, I wondered if you could share, I know you've got a couple of um, sort of key points in your own life that led to the point of that definition being so personal for you. I'm wondering if you can share some of that with the audience. Certainly, Melissa, I'd be delighted. Um, it starts a long way back when I was young. My parents were migrants and I was in a religious education class because we all did RE in those days. And the minister who was there teaching us, he asked if anyone knew who was up in the tree when Jesus went by. And I was a good Sunday school person and, and uh, I knew the answer, but I looked around and in my whole class, no one put up their hand. And I thought, well, I, I, if they don't know, I wouldn't know. Um, so I didn't. And he said, I'll give sixpence to anyone who could do it to encourage us. Still no one put up their hand and I wasn't brave enough. So then the answer was exactly what I knew. And I missed out on that sixpence. And I knew then that I would never again not put up my hand for something. I would have a go every time. Mm. So then when I went on in life, that stayed with me, the importance of having my say in everything. When um, I was working in a fairly recent part of my life or in the last 20 years, <laughs> I've been retired for some time, um, I was in charge of uh, a wonderful marketing manager who got pregnant. And that was in the days when you know women just left and could not work from home. She came back early and um, 
she wanted to do more work some nights and just get the work done, but she needed access to the database. And when I thought she, I said, well, just ask the business manager. And well, the answer was no and no. And then I, I checked and the finance manager was able to have access and do his work at home because he had a lot to do. So then I approached um, the principal and he said, yes, she's on the same level as he and she can have the database. So there we were. So I had to fight for that though, because it was easy for one person to say no, and you've got to go up, up the ladder to do that. Uh, additionally, another incident was we had to make some appointments. Now in the school, there were a lot of men in senior positions, but that's often the case in schools which were once male boarding schools. Anyway, two appointments were for co-ed day school uh, houses. And um, at the time when the head announced that there was two men, I said, well, couldn't one of those have been a woman? And he looked at me and said, well, if you don't like that, you can leave. And I was shocked that just because I'd spoken up that, you know, my voice wasn't worth hearing. Anyway, he did immediately apologise when we went out of the meeting, not in front of the other two men, I might add. Mm. And I said, well, I will consider it and I'll get back to you. But I decided then that I'd stick to my guns, even though he had apologised, because it, I needed to be able to say things. So what's the point of being on the executive committee if you can't say what you think? So that was another occasion that that uh, strengthened my need to speak up and not just sit sit back. Um, since then, after I'd retired, I've joined community boards uh, and I was an arts board and there were very few women there. And I invited someone who I knew had been a very senior manager in risk management with one of the big banks in Melbourne. And interestingly enough, I found out from her that she was paid a lot less than the men who were doing the same job, right. which is not uncommon still to this day. Mm. Um, anyway, she joined the board and when I retired, she ended up taking over as chair. Now, later on, there was another organisation, International, looking for someone with board experience to go on that board. And it's a very small board of only, I think it's six people. Um, Anyway, because of her experience, both on that board and her risk management, and as being chairman, she was invited to join that board. And after interviewing three people, she got that. And I was thrilled for her and she said, it's because of you, because she could put on her CV that she had been on a board and she had chaired a board. Mm. So I think today there are still a lot of uh, opportunities that women don't have access to of being on boards. And even if you have been on an unpaying board, a lot of women would like to be on the boards where you do get paid. Mm. And the women in most of the commercial boards with the top 100 companies do not appear to reach out wider than a small circle. That may be a bit unfair to them, but it seems the same names come up over and over again on most of the boards of the big organisations. So I'm hoping that people will, women will speak up and be strong and have their voices heard. And we don't have to be well, loud, but we have to be strong, I think, and, and keep saying what we think. 
so that's basically my point of view, Melissa. So I, I love it. I can I can actually picture the. Well, I can picture the small girl in class not putting her hand up, but it doesn't reconcile for me at all with the person I know um, today who's always been an extraordinary supporter of women and, and very passionate about making sure that, um, you know, women see themselves as capable and having access to where they want to go. Maria, this series has been fascinating and, and a real education for me. And some people have said to me, why are we still having this conversation? You know, diversity is so broad and, and it needs to be. There's a lot of change in a lot of areas. But why, are you, why focus on gender diversity? Um, and one of the interviewees that I spoke with, Anne Sherry, sort of said to me, well, because it's not fixed. You know, we'll, we'll shut up when it's fixed. Why do you think this conversation is still so important and um, why should we still be having this conversation? Oh, because I think that still need to have a lot more women's voices in everything. Um, and I know on the last board, uh, foundation board of big hospital here in Geelong, the, the CEO is an amazing woman, very strong, and I found her quite intimidating. But she said she found me quite intimidating when I, I spoke of that. But, but the need for women to be there in leadership roles for other younger women to see women, to, to see that they can do that is really important. And with COVID, we've learnt a lot about people working much more flexibly and women need to do that, need to have that opportunity because it can't be either or. It's got to, we've got to have our families and we've got to have our work. And we've got to have all of that. So I think we need to keep going until women are seen everywhere, all places, and it's acceptable. It doesn't have to be fought. But when you look at who's making the news most of the time, it's not as many women as men who are speaking out. We need a lot more women speaking out so that it looks normal to the girls of today. You shared a story with me that we might uh, end on, which was um, your disbelief at uh, what's going on in Belarus. Perhaps you could share that with the audience. <laughs> Yes, we watched uh, foreign correspondence and because uh, Lukashenko had taken over uh, as prime minister or leader, um, even though he hadn't won, his, uh, the wife of the person who had won is fighting. So the women of Belarus have come out and they are protesting every day. But Lukashenko said, well, a woman can't run a country. I mean, her job is to cook the chops and the vegetables. And she'd come to a meeting smelling of that food. And she doesn't know how to read all the papers and do all of that finance stuff. That's not a woman's role. Well, he's been in power 25 years, and I don't think he understands the world has moved on well and truly. But, but the wife of the person who's been jailed is fighting that fight from Latvia with so many women, if you have a look at that series, it's well worth watching and seeing just how far behind that country is. Maria, thank you. I can't thank you enough for, well, agreeing to come on as a cameo firstly. I know I, I, know I threw you a curveball with that one. Um, but uh, I think more importantly, um, you know, just uh, for your words of inspiration, um, and helping open my eyes all those years ago um, to probably look around a bit more and just realise that, um, you know, there is still a lot of challenge in this space. This is still a really worthwhile conversation. So thank you. Lovely to see you and lovely to be able to introduce you to the audience. 
Thank you, Melissa. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. <laughs> Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.